about everything in and relating to technology with three techno experts joel cox hi ryan swiner oh hello and me eric newman hello everybody welcome to another episode of pull request my name is eric newman and to switch it up today we're going south south of the border south of the equator south america talking to mr ryan swiner hi ryan how you doing hola hola como esta muy bien Estoy muy uh, cansado. Sí, ¿por qué? Uh, uh, tengo que trabajar mucho hoy. ¿Qué? Oh, tuve tengo que, que trabajar tuve mucho que. hoy. Well, bueno, entiendo. Yeah. Anyway, Joel, ¿cómo estás? I don't know. You don't know the... I'm just saying, how are you? The basics of the... You know, yeah, it's, it's, it's funny. Like, it's funny. No, Pittsburgh is, is one of the few places that, that is outside of the his, Hispanic... <laughs> Hispanic sphere because even the Mexican restaurants in Pittsburgh, Ryan, have Heinz ketchup on them on the Ooh. tables. Okay, I I used to say it's always a white Christmas in Western Pennsylvania, mm. okay. and then my girlfriend and her family get, said, "Well, mm. like, it never mind. You don't get it." So, mm-hmm. uh, last week we talked about crypto and the Ethereum merge, and that's really nice. Um, also, you're pro- you may be listening to this episode in order, out of order. This is episode, I think, 88, uh, but you might be listening to this out of order. So make sure you listen to part one of the Ethereum merge, which is number 87, before continuing down this road today. There'll be some important context that you'll need. Also, we uh, spruced up the audio. Joel and I spent a lot of time last night together, you know, on the phone, doing the sex. No, I'm sorry. Um, and not not phone sex, but uh, you know, doing doing a lot of back and forth and trying to figure out how to get the audio better uh, on the podcast. So there's a chance that you might have re-downloaded the episode last night. Whoever you are, uh, the good news about that is that the I made a very common mistake that I I didn't even think about. Uh, is is probably I, I'm not an audio engineer. I'm not a producer. I'm not an audio producer. I don't know this for real, but. What it looks like is the same mistake a lot of junior developers make. When a junior, when a junior developer tries to, to mark something up and they try to, uh, you know, render something or, or take, a, take an image and turn it into a website, and it's not rendering the way that they want, more often than not, they'll just keep adding styles. And they'll try to crowbar it in and just use as many styles as possible in order to get the thing to look right. And the, that, the real solution is taking stuff out. You have to remember, less is more. I fell into that trap specifically with the audio processing on this because I had like double noise gates and double compressors and then an EQ and then a bunch of other stuff. To I was basically amplifying all of the stuff that I didn't want and then trying to tamp that down, which was a giant mistake. So <clears throat> I said Joel had, had a ton of background noise and once I turned off... All of the things that I was doing to his audio, I realized that I was actually amplifying the background noise a lot more than uh, Joel. You were, even though you did have a bit of noise. It wasn't. Uh, it was like some tape hiss level. You know, it's not like um, it, it's not like a. 
which is what it sounded like when I was working on it. Uh, and same to you, Ryan. Like you, like your audio had a lot of noise, but once I broke it all down, turned off everything, and then really looked at the meters as I added everything back very slowly, I was able to come up with a new signal chain that only uses like two or three plugins, and it doesn't use all these double compressors and double noise gates, and it sounds so much better. Nice. Yeah. That's a little, uh, you know, uh, TMI, but this is a tech podcast, and, you know, we should let the listeners into a little bit of the tech behind how the show works. Speaking of which, I got a new Mac. That's nice. right. You got it. Yeah. Uh, I did it. The, uh, the Intel Mac you were talking about. Intel Mac. That's right. And why do we use it Macintoshes? Because of tradition. That's right. I've ruined the timing. Let's try it again. <clears throat> and why do we keep buying MacBook Pros? But seriously, uh, <laughs> so I got a 2019 MacBook Pro. It's the last Intel iMac, which pairs perfectly with uh, my 2020 my 2020 iMac. And I guess that's enough to make this an official Apple attack. Finally resurrecting a segment from the old days, but this will be brief, so don't worry. Basically, I found out two things about this laptop. One, it's in great condition. It's a great machine. Uh, it was $1,200 I got on an eBay. It comes with a one-year warranty. Fantastic. Terabyte hard drive, uh, 16 gigs of RAM, 4 gigs of video memory, which is great. Great. Great machine. It's basically a modern version of my 2013, which has very similar specs, including the video RAM's almost the same. This 2019 has no MagSafe, which I don't like, uh, but it can charge over USB. It has a hard escape key, and it has the, the fixed arrow keys, so they're not like uh, my Apple II. Still has a touch bar, still is Intel, still has a few things that I don't like, but the real reason behind the Apple attack is that I found out you can only have... So Ma uh, Macs have a file system called APFS, which is like Apple's something file system. And... It's all of these containers, virtualized containers. So you don't have drives and partitions, or you know, volumes and partitions and drives. You have a, you have your physical disk. You have a root container. You have child containers, and inside of those containers are volumes. And those volumes are actually two volumes: a system volume and a data volume. And nowhere does it say in any Apple documentation that you can only have one bootable, bootable volume per APFS container. Otherwise, disk utility will crash and corrupt your drive. Guess how long that took me to figure out? Hmm. How long? Guess. Hours. Well, yeah. Actually, that's, yeah. Is that, yeah. It's hours. Um... It's quite ridiculous. It took, me, it took me the better part of a day, and disk utility is such garbage that it would just crash. And then it would, like, crash while cloning the drive, so it basically ruined the partition that I was cloning to. Carbon copy cloner is something that I've been using for, you know, since 2005. That uh, doesn't work anymore. And because uh, it can't create bootable volumes, there's a lot of stuff. At the same time, why am I hung up on something that, you know, I, I, it's me getting old as well. I don't like how this can't, I can't keep doing this after 15 years, 17 years, since 2005. So some of it's on me. But at the same time, why is it so hard to make a bootable clone of your, of your system these days and then use your system disk utility to copy that back onto your computer? It's ridiculous. The command line says uh, could not create pre-boot, like insufficient information. 
or could not look up information about this drive. There are some hidden, uh, some hidden partitions or hidden volumes inside of the APFS container, like a pre-boot and a virtual machine. I don't know what the, the VM volume is for, but the pre-boot volume has all this stuff in it. Basically, your, 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 what used to be just one partition is now like three drives that Apple has all of this, or three virtual volumes that Apple has all of these weird metadata arrangements to hook them together so they look like one volume on your drive. It's ridiculous. Anyway, I went too long. That's why the music mm. ran. <sighs> well, that that's it. Thank you very much for coming to the show. Oh, no. mm-hmm. Joel, uh, before we dive into Ethereum, how's your, uh, your NAS? Horrible. Completely, utterly That's great. horrible. Did you get the stuff that you bought last week? Yeah, it came in. Same exact problem. So, so how does it have the same problem if it's, if it's new? Yes. So the motherboard was replaced. I put all the parts back on. Doesn't boot. I tried different RAM, tried different power supply. So I went to a friend of mine who runs a recycling company, got a new CPU... And that didn't work. Jeez. So everything the guy sold me was trash. Was it actually, were they actually lemons? Like, did they just don't work? Or was I, it something with the software that you're using that's incompatible with the hardware? No, I, I, I didn't even get the, I didn't even get the wow. software. I can't post. So, you, you, so the guy needs friend, to refund you the money then, right? Yeah. I'm going to have the guy at the recycle company build me something, and I'll make that money. Cool. But now i got to fight with this guy on eBay because I have a feeling he's going to drag his feet. Because he was supposed to ship this on Thursday, he didn't ship it till uh, Monday. Is there any sort of guarantee? Like, does he accept free returns? Is there, uh, other than the eBay guarantee, which I have no idea how you actually get your money back from that, but like... Well, fine story about the eBay guarantee. If you can prove that they stole something they didn't, they weren't, they didn't describe properly, you can get a no. refund. That happened to me about two years ago with a car And they actually do it timely? Oh, yeah. Uh, I called the guy, I emailed the guy saying, hey, this radio works in... South America and Australia. Can't get into one of the worst in the USA. Oh, we don't have one. I want a refund. Oh, we don't do refunds. Mm. So I called eBay and said, hey, here's what happened. Here's my paper trail. Oh, I'm sorry, sir. We'll get you money back within 24 hours. Either he's going to refund you or we'll That's do great. It. And I got my money. Hmm. Yeah. Good. This might be a, a harder battle because I got to figure out how to attack this if he doesn't want to give me one. Sure. So, I mean, not, you know, violently attack them, but metaphorically attack no, them. as in metaphorically attack with No eBay threats on this show. I'm not going to jail because of you, Joel. Nope. I'm not going to jail either. I'm not throwing uh, anybody. That's what, that's, what all, that's what they all say when they end up in jail. Look at Ryan. He had to yeah. go to the Witness Protection Program in Columbia for him to escape. Yep. That's right. Do you have any uh, tech horror stories to share over the last week? Ooh. Um... More issues with that developer? No, yeah, I haven't had to do any of that lately. Um, I've just been working on this application, so. Okay. The front end of it, a lot of it got put together by our, we have like a designer hybrid front end guy who's good at the interface stuff, and then he put together uh, the thing that's been sticky is he kind of ad hoc threw together some of his own ideas of the data model concepts, how it was going to talk to the server, and... He actually built quite a bit before I got to it. So, um, gotcha. Ryan, you're cutting out. Um, I don't know if there's anything you could do about that. but Am I? Uh, yeah, I'm having a little trouble hearing you. Your local recording should be fine. Oh, okay. But you are, uh, yeah. I don't know if there's anything you could do about that. Um, no idea. Yeah. Oh, you sound better now. There you go. Nice. 
Yay, Internet. Mm-hmm. So, go on. Oh, yeah. Um, so, I've been, I've been trying to match the actual data models and server responses to this front end, and um, I'm even okay. having to add a few add a few data entities that I didn't really plan on creating, but sure. Are you coming together? I am using TypeScript. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, honestly, like TypeScript is, it has this monotony about it, but it really does help with stuff like validating responses and making sure that data models are, are consistent. Yeah. Well, it really helps. I think the, one of the most helpful things about it is the sort of the autocomplete at once you've defined some nested types when you've described how your server data comes back, especially if you're digging through, uh, like nested GraphQL responses and stuff. Right. It or really nested just, packages or something like that. Yeah. It predicts it all really nicely for you. It's great. Which, what do you use as your, as your text editor? Are you, uh, uh VS, VS code, code or sublime? Yeah. Or? yeah. VS code's been, I feel like they just, they're pretty dominant these days. It, it really is the de facto standard, um, and I like it. It's just enough. It's just enough. It's it's just and it's and it's just that little bit more than Sublime, where it actually like I'm noticing the few things that Sublime is lacking. The more that I get into VS Code, but we're not here to talk about that. We're here to talk about going to jail from laundering money on Ethereum. I mean, nice. uh, the Ethereum merge. Yes. So merge happened last week. The yep. Ethereum Ethereum ETH, which is not to be confused with Ethereum Classic, ETC. Mm-hmm. Chances are, if you haven't heard of Ethereum Classic, you don't have any. If you've had Ethereum this whole time, Ryan, correct me if I'm wrong, if you've, hold, if you've held ETH this whole time, it's still ETH. You had to make a conscious decision to transit to transition to ETC, Ethereum Classic. Uh, it's a little different than that. So it- back in the day, yeah, so when that happened, that would have been 2016? I think it was 17. Um, okay. It was one, I remember it happening, but I don't remember exactly which year, but it was around that time. So they forked the, they forked the chain, which meant a, two chains with the same past went on living on two different networks. So right. it's 2015. We were both wrong. Okay. Yeah. So they, the, the two chains went on living on different networks, different um, RPC IDs, I guess you could say. And um, RPC is in remote procedure call. Remote procedure. What is? Uh, yeah, yeah, huh. yeah. All so right. when you when you have different networks that you point at, uh, so so there's a standard for wallet addresses. So Ethereum wallet addresses are these 42 character long um, hexadecimal strings, and um, lots of different. EVM compatible Ethereum virtual machine compatible chains use the same address standard. And so when you look in a wallet like MetaMask, you can point that wallet at any number of different networks. Only one of them is like Ethereum mainnet. There's test nets and then there's other chains altogether. Um, So uh, what happened was that Ethereum Classic uh, they didn't get to be chain ID number one. They created a different chain ID and they kept on mining um, Ethereum Classic. They kept on mining Ethereum and, and running transactions um, on a different network. And so if you had With the same 300, 
Yeah, if you had 100 Ethereum before the merge, before that, or before that fork, now you have 100 Ethereum on both networks. You have 100 Ethereum on the Ethereum Classic so that network. Effect, it's, like a, it's kind of like a split, but not. So you actually have double the money? Kind of, yeah. But the market, of course, doesn't value those the same. It considers, sure. you know, the consensus of people is that one of them is real and one of them is, like, fake or one of them is dying. And so it, it did actually hold its value relatively well compared to this um, ETH POW fork that tried to do it again this time. They tried to do something like mm -hmm. that and then immediately went to, like, nothing. It went to ah. dollars and pennies. Have you um, heard of block nineteen twenty thousand one nine two zero three zero zero zero? I have not. The first Ethereum Classic block that was not included in the forked Ethereum chain was block number nineteen twenty thousand one nine two one ninety two and then four zeros, which was generated by Ethereum Classic miners on twentieth July twenty sixteen. Hmm. Uh, I don't know what that really means, but it oh, is that, interesting, like, 192, that's definitely within the powers of two. Yeah, so that means that, that means that that was the first block of transactions that didn't share the same, that wasn't identical on the, on the other chain. So 128 that was, plus 64 is 192. Is there any significance with that, or is it just a coincidence that it happened to be this really nice number? Sounds like a coincidence. All right. Um, maybe they mined a bunch of empty blocks. Sometimes they do that. Like when there's a chain transition, they'll put a bunch of empty blocks in there just so it's clear where the transition happened. And the blocks, are they supposed to correlate across ETH and ETC? Or just, you know, like two currencies that fork each other? Are the block numbers supposed to correlate like that? Or Well, they, they have a shared history, right? So before... Well, yeah, it's going backwards, but uh -huh. forwards... Oh, no, forwards, they would have nothing to do with each other. They would have completely yeah, different that's histories. That's weird. This mm -hmm. was, it's a, such a nice number. All right. Um, all right, so we got off track a little bit. So mm -hmm. Ethereum, ETH, main Ethereum. Yeah. Uh, like New Coke. Actually, I guess it's the opposite of New Coke, but whatever. Mer became, went from proof of work to proof of stake, which the TLDR is. Actually, you know what? Wait, Joel, why don't you chime in? If you, since you were on the show last week, you, could, you, you heard us talk about it, um, and you talked about it. What's the difference between proof of work and proof of stake? I like my stake medium rare. Thank you. That was from last week also. I just had to roll twice. You just had to what, sorry? So, proof of work. Huh? You just had to what twice? I said I, just, I, rolled, I rolled twice, twice. because ah, you yeah, did the so. same trick again. So proof of work is basically doing the computations. I believe the example is you need a certain number of zeros in your number to win the prize. And it, right. What proof of stake? Well, I mean, it, proof of sorry, stake is on. proof of stake is basically you're staking your reputation and money, saying that the block you mined is correct. You're wrong, and you lose all right. your money. Right. So the so you left out the detail that on, that you you don't need to collateralize as in stake your the claim to the transaction. Uh, on proof of work, and because of that, what are the what are the possible security vulnerabilities or possible flaws in that system? Well, proof of work, if you can't prove that you actually find it, you gain the the, the um, reward that you. Didn't what happens deserve. if you control more than half of the network? 
Well, then you can say that the person with the minority part of the network transactions are invalid, and basically their transaction actions mean nothing. And then you could also, by that virtue, validate your own transactions, which means that you could double spend. Great. Correct. Ryan, does that sound right? Um, yeah, pretty much. But I think right. you actually... I actually need to get more clarity on how the how double spending would work. I, I am sure that you would be able to like censor. You would be able to um, allow because you, you can give yourself fire. consensus because you have. Yeah. Well, my my understanding was that there wasn't a double spend about who got the the reward for getting the right. lock. Like the double spend. I mean, technically, if you were had the fifty one percent, you could decide what transactions go into that block. But I think that's not how that works. Yeah, you could you can sort of you have a lot of say in priority, and then if you control fifty one percent of the network, you can basically assure that you get the block reward every time, um, and a few other things. I would need to catch up on the the mechanics of a double spend, um, but as I remember the the damage that you could do with a double spend is not as extensive as you would think um but uh yeah that's that's okay. roughly roughly correct but there is a um, lot of nuance there's a lot of nuance to any of the thinking that goes into analyzing how these decentralized systems behave right and trying to obtain 51 uh, percent of a globally distributed network is really ridiculous unless you're the military or some other department pretty um, tough pretty much or or you're making all the block miners and you didn't where they're supposed to go. Yes. There's a rumor uh, back in 2014 when I was trying to do some mining that the reason you could never get a miner was because China was hoarding them all. Back then and even? Yeah, they were releasing them very slowly. Because it took me two months to get my ASIC miner I was trying to mm -hmm. buy. So check this out. The 51% attack is an attack on the blockchain where a group controls more than 50% of the hashing power. Blah, blah, blah. The group then introduces an altered blockchain to the network at a very specific point in the blockchain, which is theoretically accepted by the network because the attackers have consensus. They have their own consensus. Changing historical blocks, as in transactions locked in before the start of the attack, would be extremely difficult, even in the event of a 51% attack. The further back the transactions are, and this makes sense, the more difficult it is to change them because it's distributed and encrypted and sent around and consent, uh, consensus consented. Yeah, so the reasoning for that is that if I go back and change a block of data 100 blocks back... Um, Every I block after that. It's like removing a Git. Yeah. I have to go re... Each block is based off the previous right. block. What so I that? have to go... Each block is based off... Each block is, is based off right. the previous block. So you need the hash from the previous block to generate the... Which means that you yeah. have to recreate your own false blockchain. Yeah, and then, well, give, and then to go consent back. yourself back you into in, including that across the network because you have over 51%. And you have a time constraint that you almost certainly can't meet. So, Well, isn't that scaled to like just the amount of users on the network? No, no, no. So you, you have to go and remake all those blocks, which right. and you, you have no way of predicting um, oh, right. which hash race is going condition. to meet the visual characteristics that you need in order right. to be a and valid block. And also to make sure that that hash isn't, act, isn't legitimately generated while you're creating these other hashes and then propagate it onto the network. 
Yeah, so, you, you still have to maintain the longest chain. So like you're trying to do this while the chain is still producing blocks. An entity would need to own more than 6.9 million ETH. That's, mil, that's million Ethereum, 6.9 million Ethereum, which is over $9 billion to attempt this kind of attack on ETH. So oh, if you were to be, if you, oh, if you were on, to get 51% of, of Ethereum. Well, it's different now with the validators. Well, um, I mean, it's completely different now also because uh, we're not doing proof of work anymore. We're doing proof of stake. Yeah, well, even, uh, so you wouldn't measure it in ETH that you would need. So during, in the proof of work era, Why not? there would be you a would certain amount of hash power you need. 51% of that, right? No, it's not, the, it's not a coin supply. It's, um, it's um, hash power. It's the amount of computing power on the network that well, you control. Let me tell you, as a, uh, I, I know, I, I definitely have experience with hash power. That's way long. Oh, I get, I get what you're yeah, saying. Yeah, it's really get great what you're when saying. you have to explain it. Um, yep. Cool. All right. So, um, all right. So we, we kind of caught up here. And mm-hmm. um, let's talk about what happened. Uh, what, let's talk about what happened in the ensuing week. So between last week, uh, when we, we talked about it, we did last episode. I know we got it out a little late, but we basically did it the day that it merged. Mm-hmm. So what happened in, the, in this in-between week? Uh, the merge merge went good. But then within a day or two, uh, you had Gary Gensler sort of hinting or announcing that with the change from the proof-of-work algorithm to a proof-of-stake consensus algorithm, that it's now easier for the SEC to make the argument that uh, the Ethereum network represents some kind of securities offering. Because you have to have a collateral, you have to have collateralization to, to validate the transactions. Well, yeah, there's a few parts. One, um, some of the, the Bitcoin proponents will make the argument that if you take the energy consumption uh, component out of um, the block production, that it's no longer a commodity, that somehow that's related, that, you know, oil and, Why? Oil and gold. Because it's it, not... Something to do with energy and consumption of energy and movement. Because commodities goods. need energy to exist? Something like that, and that huh. if you can if you can change the definition, if you can change how something works, um, then it's no longer a commodity. That's sort of is the, it. Is it like is it a legal loophole like classifying an SUV as a light truck? Something so, like that. Yeah. It's basically like well, it's already you're in kind of loophole land when you're declaring that Bitcoin is a commodity. Uh, there's there's these all these little tests and nuances that go into whether or not something is classified as a commodity or a security or whatever it is do you know what those um, are? uh vaguely so um they make a big deal out of the fact that bitcoin was issued by it wasn't like um it didn't have a monetary value it wasn't sold for anything there was no expectation right. of return it traded for free for several years and, and it was completely decoupled from USD, so it would be that's see that's an easier argument to make. It's like, well, this thing basically doesn't exist. Yeah, it's completely coupled, decoupled from the U.S. dollar. Uh, the um, the founder didn't spend any of those initial coins. That's also they make a big deal of that. Um, that there is no organization that seems to have outsized or significant influence over the network. Um, and it's 
monetary characteristics, its behavior doesn't change. It has a very defined monetary policy that has endured now for, um, uh, what is it, 13, 14 years now? And so they make a, they make a big deal out of, out of that. And you, the, they make the argument that because uh, Ethereum is so much more adaptive that significant changes to the, the behavior of the money um, have happened, that there is sort of this either, whether it's the illusion or the actuality of uh, there being a lot of influence over the network by the Ethereum Foundation. Sure. Um, so there's, there's these factors where um, there, there is the argument that Ethereum has, um, has leadership or has um, sort of has a, a governing body in a way. So, right. Well, and, does it? Well, I guess it does. Yeah, the consensus makers <clears throat> of the of the network. It kind of does, but the way in which these proposals make their way into being like part of the roadmap for Ethereum is quite decentralized. Like, no one person really has a has a lease on that process. Ah, and, here's actually. Mm. Uh, I found. I I just found. A great way to dis distinguish commodities versus securities. Ready? Go one for it. One starts with the letter S. The other one starts... No. Uh, it's called the Howey test. Yep. There's three questions. Number one, is there an investment of money with the expectation of future profits? Is mm -hmm. Number two, is the investment of money in a common enterprise... And number three, and this is the big one, I think, do any profits come from the efforts of a promoter or third party? So um, commodities are basically, unlike securities, commodities don't generate a return from a common enterprise. I'm not entirely sure what a common enterprise is. Instead, I think this is where they sorry. wedge in the decentralization thing. Ah, that so in, You can in, make that argument. Gotcha. So commodities don't generate a return from a common enterprise. Instead, they're goods or property that get grown or mined where their value depends on the supply and demand of the market. But that's also the same for securities. Like securities value depends on the supply and demand of the market, doesn't it? Yeah, its price does. But um, there is common enterprise, you know, in the fact that if Tesla says they're going to make a Car that does something different that has a material impact on the value of those shares uh, Tesla stock is not a thing that exists independent of that organization's existence or without the effort of those those uh, people. but that would make it a commodity not a security no it's definitely a security because there well, it definitely is, is a security third party there is that third party there is um um, there is a common enterprise. And so the decentralization argument is um, what they use to say that we don't have common enterprise in the way that is suggested typically by the SEC or by securities laws. And uh, Bitcoin uses its fixed monetary policy, and they even cleverly use the word mining to really give Bitcoin all of the characteristics of a commodity. That's right. a stated goal of the network. And that's, and that's to avoid being classified as a security. Correct. 
Right. Now, by the way, speaking of their energy consumption, I just pasted a graph. This is the same graph that we looked at last week um, about the Ethereum energy consumption. I pasted that into the, into the show notes. Take a look. This is exactly what you said, Ryan. Take a look at that cliff. Yeah. Isn't that crazy? That looks like my Coinbase portfolio by mm. complete coincidence. Mm-hmm. Mine, too. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, yeah. So yeah, once the merch happened, it really, it really, it took really that, just, all that hash power, all that, just all that heat generation, all that hash just got smoked. I mean, um, right. Mm hmm. Mm hmm. Um, cool. So you have this article, SEC shifts focus to Ethereum and acrimonious, an acrimonious regulatory rumble. Post-merge, the SEC could be gearing up for a legal challenge to Ethereum's securities status. So the reason why we're talking about this is because the SEC is really trying to, to see if they can take a share. I mean, that's essentially what it is. They're not trying to help us out and, save, and prevent people from getting screwed. They're trying to find a way that they can get more money for the government. Uh, and probably also at this point piss off Elon since he is really asking for it with what he's been doing with cryptocurrency. What has he been doing with it? Well, he, he well, I guess really nothing, just talked I guess nothing about recently. Doge. When mm-hmm. did he host SNL? Was that like five years ago and just my sense of time is off? It was last was year. Last so year. that's mm-hmm. like when he when he said whatever it was about, what, Doge? Or Dogecoin. What, Dogecoin. Yeah. And then like he he, within a couple of hours, massively influenced the price of that. And if that were actually a security that were regulated by the market, he might be in jail. Or at least he might have got a <laughs> fine. Uh, and that's the type of stuff that if you just stay quiet, the SEC probably won't care. But the more noise that people make about it and the more, you know, messing with their di- with the dials that people do, like Elon, the more that the SEC is kind of obliged to step in. Um, so, I mean, what else, like, what, what, what else is the SEC looking at when trying to regulate Ethereum? I they look at themselves as an enforcement agency, and I think the really frustrating thing from the crypto industry perspective is that they they don't really seem to be laying out clear guidance. They sure. seem to they seem to be saying that we wrote we write we write the rules for how these things are regulated, but then at the same time they don't put in any effort to describe what those rules are. Probably because if they did, then you could sue them over it. It's, it's, it's actually exactly the same tactic that the FCC did uh, when we were in high school with, um, remember the Janet Jackson incident? And, mm. and, then they, and then they just went, the FCC went super hard on regulating stuff. They never published the actual, um, what was it called? The actual rules for what was considered good speech or normal speech. They, but they would fine you if they then decided that you broke one of their rules, but you could never get them published because if you actually got them in a hard copy, then you could sue them over it. And you could say that this is unconstitutional what the FCC is doing. So they never actually wrote it down, but they were still successfully fining and suing companies. And because a lot of the, the, the companies that the FCC looks at, a lot of these companies are big. The companies just want to avoid litigation. So rather than trying to sue them, they'll just pay the fine and fire the talent. And I feel like this is the same thing, where if the SEC actually lays out guidelines or rules or regulations, that's immediately going to be taken to court. But also, I think there's an issue of sovereignty here, because 
It's like the U.S. making laws over the Internet. We don't own the Internet. The U.S., the, the, the sovereignty of this decentralized network it was, is, sorry, I'm getting ahead of myself. The decentralized network was made explicitly to avoid sovereignty issues like the U.S. regulating the entire network. But of course, right. Uncle Sam still needs money. So I think that's probably why. But that's just me, who's not a lawyer or um, in, in the market. There was a very interesting um, document that got released in the last week or two. I can't remember. It was um, the SEC was coming after a guy named Ian Bellina, who was part of some coin offerings in 2017. Okay. And they and made the, the argument that the SEC had jurisdiction over things that happened on the Ethereum network because the majority of the nodes are in the United States. Mm. So that was an interesting um, argument they tried to make, that a lot of that traffic, that, that the vast majority of the nodes exist inside of the United States and therefore it was effectively a um, sure. yeah it was a, it was an interesting argument so you can see them trying their hand at um, new levers of influence sure. very interesting in this article they talk about the uh, the lawsuit that the SEC had with Ripple XRP mm-hmm earlier uh earlier this year and they lost uh so ripple what is it the sec uh, ripple had already won big earlier this year when judge sarah netburn of the u.s district court ordered the sec to release email documents to ripple which the sec had attempted to cloak under attorney client privilege that doesn't really say anything about why they won it just said the SEC, maybe the SEC is just in a huff because its legal actions against the $20 billion cryptocurrency isn't quite going their way. But what does that actually mean? So if they're already losing a lawsuit without having these, without having hard regulations, then I think that that's only going to be, that's only going to make them look worse if they actually publish some. Right. <clears throat> and oh, I think while that's happening, um, the legislative body is starting to think about this stuff more and more there are laws being drafted um is that around... the direct legislation no 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 that's a whole different topic that um, all right we'll get back to that then yeah there's a there's a wilder idea that cryptocurrency provides a secure layer of communication for the internet effectively right. money is and... speech thanks to citizens united Nice. Yeah. You gotta so use you, that, you, at some point, you got to use that logic for us, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And so you, so the cryptography allows us to create a lot of dynamics on the internet where we can prove certain things are true. We could prove the origin of certain right. uh, pieces of information to to a high enough degree of certainty that, you know, it wouldn't be controversial to um, to conduct voting, to conduct uh, much more serious um, sort of governmental sure type activities. It, on wasn't chain. there another? Wasn't there a country that already switched to blockchain based voting, like the Philippines or something? I hope so, because it just makes good sense. It's a better way to do it. 
it's relatively problem free. Um, but blockchain voting, I think, is really just the start of it. I think really the power of this ends in um, something like a Wikipedia style legislative process uh, where you would think of the U.S. legal code as something like um, a GitHub repository. Right. And then, and then you would have to state consensus to make edits. Before yeah. Well, actually. citizens would be able to basically propose direct edits and um, those would become branches. Those branches would be debated and included or, or those pull requests would be closed. Yeah. And he said it, he said it. You could, um, you can essentially imagine that you can use these secure uh, voting and um, commitment procedures to navigate a legislative process. It's sort of the missing piece. You know, open source software already showed us how we can have thousands of people work together on the same project, but that's very different from um, political concerns where, you know, there isn't as much of a clear direction sure. on but what that the right answer. Makes it, it makes it a lot harder to steal elections. Um, right. So it, but, it looks like a lot of there, there, there are actually a few U.S. states, I guess just two U.S. states, and a small collection of countries, Colorado, Oregon, and uh, Utah, have mm-hmm. all slightly adopted blockchain-based voting. In Utah, in a recent U.S. general election, a person in Utah became the first person to use their cell phone in a blockchain-based voting app to vote for president. Uh, in Denver, a pilot program allowed overseas voters and active-duty military personnel to vote for municipal elections through blockchain. Uh, Oregon, there's... Um, not Multnomah County, where Portland is, but other counties, uh, trialed a similar system. Uh, I don't know where that ended up. And then you've got some other countries, like Japan, which, you know, that makes sense. They're in the future already. Brazil, Sierra Leone, Russia, uh, and South Korea, and Switzerland. Well, I think in a lot of ways, this is just a... It's just a more reliable way to do that, right? Right. So I I think that that, you know, these countries... I shouldn't say all of these countries, but... Uh, you know, they don't have the level of, of corruption that we do. Yeah. Well, I don't know about Sierra Leone or Russia. They but. usually have lower. They usually have higher levels than we do. As far, as much as you can um, point to the, the governmental problems that we have in the United States, you really get a sense of how good we have it when you're not there. True. Very true. Um, yeah. Okay. Uh, let's move on. So... Um, you have uh, second layers of the Ethereum merge. What do you? What is a second layer? Ah, okay. Is so, that like a derivative? No, no. It's a. So the bandwidth of a blockchain, the the number of transactions you can actually put through at any given moment, is not that high. Um, How is that determined? It has to do with the. Okay, so so a data packet that needs to be verified all over the network, there are certain limitations um, on how big that data packet can be before it becomes unreasonable that you're going to be able to uh, validate that block. Now, when you say data packet, do you mean like a TCP packet or what's what's actually um, like 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 a packet for the like that's in the data packet of the tcp that actually has yeah so the actual the actual data that that comprises the transactions to be submitted for the block Mm. 
So there's a limit on how big that that blob of data can be before it becomes difficult to propagate it throughout the network and get consensus within the uh, time constraints. You know, given the different equipment that people are operating, the restrictions on gateways around the internet, there's all sorts of little constraints that make it so that when you're when you're assessing the trade-offs for how big a block of data, each block, each 12-second block of data should be, there are certain constraints that, um, that, that have an effect on how much data that can or should be in order for you to maintain the performance of your network. Sure. So it ends up, it's not that much data, right? So every, every block, it's not that much data. It's, uh, but the propagation is really what, what, what takes the time. Yeah, so it's it's a there's a trade-off between propagation speed, equipment, internet. There's there's equipment factors. There's sure. a lot of things. But it's an equilibrium equation. Yeah, it's sort of a it's sort of a discovered a little bit through calculation and somewhat through practice. And after sure. a while, it's like it's such a complex problem that it's kind of a trust me kind of thing. It's like a but uh, the the Ethereum network gets through about um, uh, fourteen transactions a second or something like that. It's not that much. And so it's far short of what you need to supply a um, a world payment network. And sure. so one way to address this is to use um, second, what they call second layers, basically alternate um, blockchains that run on top of the Ethereum network that borrow its security guarantees. But, but isn't that they, what a derivative is? No, no, no. It's um so when you're running a second layer like a roll up, you're you're using different programming languages and you're effectively compressing the data that you fit into every single block and then you're storing that application state elsewhere and then mm. you are you're actually making a transaction on the main chain that says that um, where there's a there's a, a signature of a larger chunk of data, so whereas you might only be able to store a few kilobytes of signature data on the main chain, um, that signature ah. corresponds to a much larger chunk of data and application state on one two. of these rollups. They're literally rolled up. So you're now, how do you know that uh, uh, an Ethereum block is associated with layer two? Uh, one of these that's a good Does question. It actually, have a like a hash or some kind of data in there. I can understand going the other way, but going from Ethereum to Layer Two, how do you tell? Like, I would imagine that I would imagine that it would have to do with where the transaction came from. So, sure, the the networks, the rollups are going to have um, addresses associated with the smart contracts that um, that are that that govern the rollups. Check this out. Um, A layer two blockchain regularly communicates with Ethereum by submitting bundles of transactions in mm -hmm. order to ensure it has similar security and decentralization guarantees, which yes. you just said. Uh, all this requires no changes to layer one. This lets layer one, which is the base Ethereum layer, handle security, data availability, and the decentralization while layer twos handle scaling. So mm -hmm. is it kind of like a CDN where you have your server, but then it gets propagated out to all these edge servers. So you don't have to worry about the scaling. You don't have to worry about failover. That's what the edge layer does. You just have to worry about making sure that the link between your server and the edge is up. And then also that, uh, 
I, I guess there's, that's it. There's some decent analogy to be made there. Yeah, I think there's something like that. Um, layer two, yeah. take the transactional burden away from layer one and, and post finalized proofs back to the layer one. By removing yes. this transaction load, the base layer becomes less congested and everything becomes yep. more scalable. That's the idea. So that's how you get to 20,000, 40,000 transactions a second. Um, right. And beyond. And then there's even talk of putting roll-ups on roll-ups. So Roll it started off as a joke, but it uh, turns out this might actually be a valid technique. So That makes sense. As, it's exponential yeah. scaling. Yeah, so you just start, uh, you just have a fractal sort of relationship. So you might have, um, you know, ZK Sync might be a a second layer zero knowledge proof roll up system, and then you might actually put a zero knowledge proof roll up on a roll up. Zero knowledge proof. Zero knowledge proofs are interesting. I've dipped into this concept um, a few times. Get here, Ryan. Nope. Oh, Ryan, it says you're offline on Zencaster, but I can still hear you. That's odd. I see. I can see his, his um, line. Well, you interrupted Zencaster, him, Joel. We were, we were talking about zero knowledge proofs. I, I guess can't you hear can. You. Stop huh? hashing your transactions. Oh. I, I don't. I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know what to do. Um, I don't want to. I don't want to restart the recording. I mean, I, I well, can no, hear me, and I've got my local way. recording. So. Right, and I can hear you, but it does say that you're... What's, what's weird is that I don't see your waveform anymore, and it does say that you're offline, but if you are, how are we talking? That's a great question. I see my waveform. Yeah. Hmm. It's... That's... Uh, I don't know what to... I don't know what to do. <laughs> I don't know. But I've got a local recording. So. Yeah, no, but it's about the fact that the third person can't hear hear you. Oh. You can only hear the questions that I, I ask you. That's strange. It is. I don't hmm. know what to do. Whatever. I, I let's just keep we're 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 over the we're over halfway done. Let's just keep pushing through here. I'm nice. sorry, Joel. Uh maybe, Joel, if you reload Zencaster. I don't That's know. Safe. I don't know. I haven't had this issue before. <laughs> like I, if I if I do anything to Ryan, it might actually kick him out. And then we do have to start the recording. Yeah, mm. Are you still there, Ryan? Yeah, I'm still here. Oh, man. Hmm. So weird. Um, I'll just address that. What one. if you open Zencaster again in a, a private window? Either of you. All right. I'll do cool. It. So while Joel's doing that. Ryan, uh, a zero-knowledge proof, to get back on track, is one where the party can prove to another party that a given statement is true while the prover avoids conveying any additional information apart from the fact that the statement is true. Right. Ah, okay. So it's a zero-knowledge proof. Mm -hmm. It just, you can trust that it says it's true or not, but it doesn't tell you anything other than yes or no. Right. So it's this, a simple example is, is the user over 21? Confirm they're over 21 without actually revealing their age. Right. Right. And so the network, these zero-knowledge um, proof systems, they have advantages in the speed at which they're able to confirm things and also um, privacy guarantees they can make. Right. And, but this, are they still hamstrung by the 
uh, by the propagation uh, issues and just like the low speed of propagation? Because it's still uh, a blockchain. You still have to validate. It still needs consensus. It still has to mm, distribute. I I don't know as much about how the second layer technologies work, but I do know they are a whole lot faster. They're a bit more centralized. There's mm. um, that's there's trade-offs. Yeah, there's there's trade-offs in how they work, and uh, but they 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 do achieve a great deal of speed, and they limit the risk to the network by um, constraining the time in which they they operate. So the the overall the layer one um, manages the overall state of the network um, over time and. It really has to be secure. It really has to be unhackable. Um, But that also means that layer two doesn't, you don't have to, it still needs some security, but it doesn't, it doesn't need the same level of security, which is odd. You'd think it would, I know it, maybe it's just that it, 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 because it inherits the security protocols, it can just use Ethereum's security protocols on itself, right? Is that what that means? Pretty much, pretty much accurate. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. It's able to borrow from the security guarantees. It's able to borrow from the security guarantees of the main network without having to go through all of the rigor to create those security guarantees. I gotcha. So Joel, can you hear Ryan now? You can. Yes, That's can. great. And I can hear both of you. I don't want to nice. kick one of the Joels out. We have Joel, say something. Yeah, that's, yeah. I mean, you have like this odd double track effect. Whatever. Shoestring budget. Zero budget recording. Much like zero knowledge proof. Zero budget mm-hmm. podcasts. Um, yes. All right. So, uh, let's see. So, ZK roll-ups. What is... Mm-hmm. What is this with ZK? Oh, zero knowledge. That's the zero knowledge thing, yeah. All of these acronyms. Mm-hmm. Someone acronymized action items today in a meeting. Ooh. They were Ooh. like, uh, the AIs for you, Eric. I'm like, AIs? What? Are they action items? Oh, yeah. Okay. Always more acronyms. So, all right. Mm-hmm. Uh, let's keep moving on. Uh, direct legislation. Oh yeah, do you want to do that? Talk about that. That thing is uh, it's a fun topic. I mean, do you? I mean, do you want to? We could, or we could can it now and do that next time, because we're we're we are kind of close to an hour. Last time yeah, we, we could, did like eighty minutes. Um, what do you want to do? Yeah, we could do that one as its own topic. It's you think so? You really have to crack open the the idea of how you would make a government if you started from a blank page. That's how we got at the government we have now. Yeah, yeah. Well, it's so it's. I think the analogy with this direct legislature thing is a bit like uh, an 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 easy way to think about it. I guess there isn't an easy way to think about it, but it's interesting to note that Africa generally skipped installing traditional telephony systems in many places. They went they went right to the cell phone tower. Right. Yeah, and I, I think. If you could use modern communication tools to create a legislative process, I think you would skip a lot of things. Sure. Um, I mean, if you if you think about it, we skipped having a monarchy and just went to having right to parliamentary democracy because, you know. Yeah. Uh, we, I think in the same that. way, our, our modern communication tools give us so much power. And Absolutely. if you think about Git, Twitter... And uh, secure signatures, 
via cryptography, mm-hmm. I think you basically have all of the elements you need for um, for debate, for legal code. For That's if you're acting in good faith. But we don't act in good faith in the U.S., unfortunately. Well, Not to mention there's going to be like two people in Congress that actually understand what this is. Well, our, our legislative system is meant to um, be adversarial, right? So you, you're trying to design a system that performs well in spite of existing in a hostile environment. Well, but, right, but I'm saying that it's, 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 if, if we're operating in good faith, then absolutely, but we're not. We're, we're not able to slip. So it, like if, if we did this uh, decentralized legislation, you can't really slip in a rider at the last minute and then demand a vote or else we don't have a government anymore. You can't do well, that. I think you actually have a throughput problem, right? So the reason that we have riders in the first place is because we have Lobbyists. a few hundred people navigating our legislative process when maybe we need a few hundred thousand people navigating that process. Well, right, and, so, and that would make it a lot more democratic and decentralized, but that's not what the lobbyists that are bankrolling the government want. And that's why we have the system that we, I mean, remember, our tax code is, is, is purposefully obtuse thanks to intuit lobbying the IRS to prevent them from simplifying the tax code so people have to buy their software. That's the world that we're in. So I'd love to entertain the fantasy of blockchain-based legislation, but we're in such a twisted, corrupt, backwards paradigm right now that I don't see it happening here. And that's well, possibly why a lot of the smaller actually, countries are able to get to get it to work because, you know. Yeah, I actually my model of how it works, and I guess we could we could do an episode on this. But um, my model of how it probably works is that it would um, it would happen in little little Singapore's basically that sure um, that you would have groups of rich people that would buy up tracts of land in weak states. So you go to a weak country that can't even enforce its laws as it like is, like Sierra Leone. Yeah, so you just you go somewhere, you buy a bunch of real estate, and then you start building stuff. And then you decide that you're going to govern that stuff with your, in your private city with a series of smart contracts and with these modern tools. And but you still, through, need, you still need the cooperation of the government, because if you think about it, actually, You don't. No, you do, because think about, think you about need Disney. Them, at a bare minimum, you just need them to not come in with tanks. Okay, no, but think about, think about Disney. Disney basically built their own fake city in Central Florida. Mm-hmm. They yep. had to create a shell company that had a special, like a, a, a one-off regulation from the state of Florida that allowed them to operate virtually autonomously in their district. It's the something creek, right? Something, but district. that's because the United States is not a weak state. Oh, oh, okay, I got gotcha. you. When you go to Panama, right, right, right. They don't even have the offices to oversee you. Sure. So that's okay. the point. Right, that's you the go somewhere where you are rich and you have resources and you do whatever you want. You're not doing something that is um, threatening to anger the surrounding administration. They're just happy you're there and that you're not poor. Right. So that's a, you go to a weak state that lets you do, that has to let you do whatever you want, basically by default, and then you make a system that works really well, and then they're probably going to want you to spread that system to the wider geographical area 
because it works better than what they're doing. And also because you can, you can basically bribe them from the inside out, you can create a more effective. If you, if you basically perfect government in a box um, that doesn't piss off as many people because everyone involved feels like they have some direct influence over the system, right. like at a, at a bare minimum, if you didn't like some parking laws outside of your place and you knew for a fact that you could kick off the legislative slash regulatory process from your phone right now, you would probably never reach the point of protest. Hmm. That's, that's sort of the theory uh, that I think that you would have a much less inflammatory system of uh, governance because people feel like pe they have a voice. Yeah. People can only, they can really only get really mad when they feel disempowered. I think. When you know, not theoretically, but for a fact, that you can start the legislative process, um, then anything that you don't like about how the world functions, um, if you want to change it, you can. And two, it's going to be a lot less um, of a controversial, or it's going it's to be a lot less of an emotional process because it's going to feel like work. It's right. not going to... You're and it also act. prevents the like the 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 fact that so much of our legislation in political uh, arenas hinge on like two percent of of margin between two parties. Yeah. Can so you imagine really how, how much less angry people would be? It's like if you say, OK, I don't like how something works. OK, well, what do you want the law to be? Write the words. Right. And then, well, that's nice. But more people voted in favor of the other stuff. <clears throat> well, so what would happen is, but, but you could always propose a line change. And that's basically the, the, the power of this concept of a new system is that you could always propose a line change and then you could even sort of stack overflow um, the best answer to a problem. So if you Man, had... that would be funny. Who should I vote for in the next election? Stack overflow. Well, I, I, I think it would be more like, it would be more like if there was a, a law that needed to be changed, you would see a hundred different versions, a hundred different rewrites of it. And then there would be upvoting to choose the best one. And then once a, there was consensus on the best version of that law, then you would start some type of process to integrate it, to, to actually turn it into a binding agreement of society that if you break this law, we will fund people to show up to your house and take away your freedom for a time or something like that. So like you, that's, that's the most serious form of communication that people have is binding agreements within a geography. Like these are the things sure. that we agree upon such that if you violate them, we will commit resources to detain you. That's, um, that's what that's, that is the purpose of government. And, um, but I think we can navigate that process a lot better as a collective um, if we can eliminate the concept of they and we can use modern communication whoa, tools. Whoa, whoa, whoa. Hey, look, we respect people's pronouns here. <laughs> yeah, if we can screw they. Um, and, um, who are they? Yeah, who are them? Who are, who are they? Who are them? <laughs> but yeah, if, if you have a legislative process like this, then um, there is no they. It's just... It's just us. It's just it's just a, a massive civilization uh, deconflicting its own interests with each other, and that process could be much more direct. And with some software, it could be a much cheaper process. 
Um, it could be a much more efficient process. You could be very transparent. Everyone could have their citizen's ID associated with any line change they suggested. Um, you could accrue reputation over over time for being someone who writes exceptionally good policy. And so maybe over time, you know, this person's policies get considered a little faster just because in our experience, this person just writes this stuff so much better than everyone they else. They have more Reddit gold. Yeah, they just, they just, they don't miss. Uh, okay. So I think we would find, we would, instead of getting people into office on criteria that don't really matter, now it would be more like, it would be more like when you go on a GitHub repository and you look at the actual contributors and sometimes the face of the project has nothing to do with the person who has done all the line, like who sure. has a weird majority of the commits. Um. Okay. I, I think we would actually optimize for much, much better outcomes if is, we is had this, such a system. And this isn't your direct legislation bit? This is just blockchain-based politi politics? Oh, no, that is, that is kind of, that is the idea. It's the idea of, ah. of that... Well, then don't waste the content for the next show. Oh, yeah, there's, there's always more. There's, there's plenty, always more content. More All right, why don't that. we put a pin in it here, and then let's talk about something fun. Also, I really have to pee. Um, nice. Google is coming for Dolby Atmos and Dolby Vision. I don't know if you guys are familiar with Dolby Atmos. It's a real um, game changer in the industry. Uh, basically, it allows you it allows you much more control over how to master audio and how to and how to have mul uh, multiple multi-channel mixes. So um, you can create different. I believe you can create different mixes for different speaker setups, and they're all kind of folded together in in one file um i think that's what it is it expands on existing surround sound systems by adding height channels allowing sounds to be interpreted as three-dimensional objects oh right so you basically have a like a sphere and instead of panning stuff left to right you place it in the sphere hmm. that's what dolby says now the thing is, is that dolby who uh i i think he was the best in, in devo but Dolby really, uh, they, they, they exist because of their fees and the royalties. And so the Dolby Atmos fees are really high because you have to get the Dolby Atmos uh, uh, audio unit for your DAW. You have to get some kind of special equipment to actually do the mixing. And, and then you, you know, the regular license overhead. So Google is coming for that. They're trying to out, oust Dolby with, I guess, I don't know if it's open source, but it's definitely... Google Alphabet. It's called Project Caviar, uh, which also does not currently support Dolby Atmos or Dolby Vision. However, Google also claims to bring other industry players on board. Uh, it makes Project Caviar one of Google's most ambitious pushes for open media formats. So th this would actually be really cool. Uh, I just don't know if anyone uses it because who uses the open formats we have now? Like OG. Who, uh, who uses OG? Like... You know, that's open format. I think that's what the O stands for. But this could be really cool. Um, Dolby charges TV manufacturers 2 to $3 per head per product to license Dolby Vision. So you think about just like how many TVs are out, are out there that's a, that all, all the smart TVs these days would support Dolby Vision or Dolby Atmos. And, that, and then they're paying Dolby, I guess, like 2 to 3 bucks for Dolby Vision, probably another 2 to 3 bucks for Atmos. It looks like... Uh, 
Oh, I'm sorry. Dolby hasn't publicly disclosed licensing fees for Atmos, probably because it wants to charge differently for each person. It charges consumers who want to add immersive audio to their Xbox consoles 15 bucks. But the fee that the hardware manufacturers have to pay is said to be significantly lower. That's interesting. Hmm. Um, Apple has thrown support behind Dolby Vision, which makes sense because I see the logo pop up whenever I use my Apple TV. But the format has gained close to zero support from Android phone manufacturers because they don't care about visuals. No, I don't know why. Uh, Giving Google an opening to promote a royalty-free alternative with a big focus on video capture. But again, like, I I, I feel like whenever we're... Because we've been through these format wars before. I don't see... I I I don't remember where or when the open standard actually won. Because it's always slightly worse because they have to make concessions because they can't charge for it. Like, I would bet 85 cents that Dolby Atmos and Dolby Vision are going to be better in terms of fidelity than Project Caviar. I think if it's a lot of AI-based, you know, models, then maybe not, because Google has been doing that like mad for the last many years. Um, But yeah, yeah, it's very interesting. Um, Yeah, I guess that's it. So, nice. yeah. So, uh, the company is set to repeat the success story in the audio space where services like Apple Music are betting on Dolby Atmos to become the de facto standard for spatial audio. That's right. If you have Apple Music, you can actually listen to your stuff in Dolby Atmos. If Now, if you're wearing regular headphones, is that going to make a difference? I don't know. I don't think so. But um, exciting things to come. And also exciting things to come are, uh, I don't know, I'm out of gas. I've been on the phone for eight hours today, hmm. and seven of those hours were consecutive, so I'm, I'm, I'm out of it. I'm done. Can't even complete a sentence. Uh, Joel, you've been surprisingly quiet again. Are you still there? All right. I'm here. Well, do you have anything to say about any of that stuff? My question is this. I have a lot of, I've seen a lot of surround sound um, yeah. headphones, but none have the Dolby logo. So does that mean they're all unlicensed or are they a different form of surround sound? I mean, surround sound is kind of a general thing when we're compared to Dolby, but Dolby surround typically requires discrete channels. So like if you're yeah. like 5.1, like exactly, or 7.1. Uh, and so Atmos just increases, this adds another dimension literally by allowing you to uh, place objects in a 3D space. I, they, they might use some acoustic math to really figure out, to, you know, like the Bose, um, what was that? Like the Bose bar that does, like fake, that does fake surround using acoustics. It mm-hmm. might do something like that. I'm not sure. Uh, oh, here we go. Dolby Atmos has headphone implementations for PCs, Xbox One, and the Xbox Series X and S and phones, they work by using audio processing algorithms to convert the Atmos object into a binaural 360 output using two headphone speakers. Exactly what I, I just mentioned. So, with the release of the third generation AirPods in October of 2021, Apple added support for Dolby Atmos branded Spatial Audio. So, yeah. Um, I don't know, it'll be interesting. Because, like, if you're going to listen to, I don't know, Radiohead, is that actually going to make a difference because it was always it was originally mixed for two channels, and now you're now you have three D capabilities. Like, what is that really going to do for you? I don't know. 
Right. Okay. Hmm. Well, with that, I think it's time to end. So, Joe, or both of you that are there, uh, do you approve this week's pull request? Yeah. Wonderful. I do. And you, Ryan? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. All right. Well, then stay tuned for the... Ex- I'm sorry. Well, then stay tuned to the exciting conclusion of the Ethereum Merge Saga next week, right here on Pulver Request. This has been a Pneumonium production. The views and opinions expressed on Pulver Request do not necessarily reflect those of Pneumonium LLC or its subsidiaries. Theme music by Wolfpack. <laughs>